Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon. As you know, we have been pursuing this concept of cultic ideas, incorrect worldviews, things that are effectively damaging to the solidarity of orthodoxy within the church at some point or another. Sometimes it's currently ongoing. Sometimes it's something that's already happened that's still affecting us now. Well, we're about to go into Cults and Solutions 2.0. And what we've done is take a look at an older timeline to really give you a very clear inside look. Some of you may be asked, how are people just coming up with these strange doctrines out of thin air? Well, the answer is it's not out of thin air. If you don't already know, many of these doctrines were condemned very early on in Christianity, and there are records of that condemnation and records of the debates that took place when these condemnations occurred. Nonetheless, as we've talked about in some of our other episodes, some of these leaders of modern cultic religions or just modern religions that are not necessarily always called cultic but contain some of the ideas that came from these ancient heresies, they said, oh, God's done with the church. We need to start our own thing. And inevitably, they have gone back and they've researched early Christianity, because as we talked about, some of them are restoration movements, and they think they're taking the church back to this early Mm -hmm. model. But what they've really done with their lack of training, in many cases, they have actually resurrected ancient heresies that were very old, as old as the church or older, and yet were already condemned. And now they're back in the modern church. So what we're talking about over the next number of episodes is going to be ancient cults, Mm and their modern counterparts ancient heresies and modern heresies they're 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 Perfect. they're um you know modern counterparts completely agreed brian what happened for you this week at calvary college well we entered into the 1800s um as i pointed out last week we were in Re- revolution romanticism well this week we talked about what some term the great century it was great on many parts, particularly with the evangelistic work that was coming out of England mm. and Germany. Um, you know, it's a who's who of great Christian thinkers and leaders and missionaries. Very exciting. Um, but uh, on the other hand, it, it was also the not so great century, <laughs> particularly for some things that began to happen here in America. And that is mm. what kind of what we're talking about, the rise of the cults. The 1800s mm. spawned a plethora of cults, you know, Mormonism, early thoughts and Jehovah Witness and you fill in the blank. It, it all has its origins in this time frame. So it was a good class, thoroughly enjoying it. What about your class, Luke? Well, this week we finished up watching a film, among other things, called Tortured for Christ. It's the story of Richard Wormbrand and his wife and their testimony for Christ. Now, if you don't know him, he was, I know you do, Brian, but our audience may not. He was effectively the founder of what you know today as the Voice of the Martyrs, Mm -hmm. where he and his wife, Sabina, are advocating for changes in policy and for world awareness of persecutions that are happening in countries all over the world. Mm -hmm. That stems from his own story. But the reason why we showed that really, Brian, was that here in America, sometimes we get nervous just going up to somebody in the mall and asking them, hey, do you happen to know Jesus as your Savior? And we're like, oh, no, what's going to happen And comparing that with somebody who's willing to spend 14 years in 
a prison and beaten and tortured and, and still won't stop praying for his captors, still won't stop witnessing, still won't stop preaching to his cellmates, despite the fact that there are beatings. He says this one thing, he says here and sort of tongue in cheek, we had an arrangement with the guards. We would pray, they would give beatings and both of us would be happy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's literally the way it was and how different from our current Christianity, but to show them, hey, you know what? This faith is something that's worth your personal sacrifice. Yeah. If he can make that kind of sacrifice, then how much more can we just step out of our doors and tell someone about Jesus? Yeah, so good, so cool. Well, Luke, you did this beautiful introduction. I'm just going to add one component for our listeners, and that is we chose these heresies based upon their arrival within Christian history. Or yes. put another way, we're going to deal with them chronologically. So as we talk about these heresies, the historical precedence is going to be a chronological look at them, but the application to modern times may not be chronological because you have you know, some of their, their modern forms or variations of some of these are not necessarily chronologically and will be picking and choosing for different things um, within the church. But the, the actual historical chronology is such that we're going to cover these heresies as they unfolded in history. And Luke, what are some of those heresies that our listeners can expect? Great segue, Brian. So the first one we're going to look at today is Gnosticism. Now, some of these don't be off put by these terms, because I know that sometimes as soon as these terms are mentioned, people's eyes glaze over. I promise you <laughs> there is much content here that's going to be much more familiar to you than some of the terms that we're speaking of. But we want you to know the proper names of these things. So we're going to mention them under the proper names. But I promise you we'll unpack it. So Gnosticism is the first one. Then we're going to be dealing with Montanism. And believe it or not, Montanism just so that we'll whet your appetite, has a connection to modern-day radical Pentecostalism. Much of the stuff we've been talking about recently with Deliverance Ministries and the new Apostolic Reformation. So we're going to be mentioning that. We're also going to be dealing with monarchianism. Now, this is the idea that God basically is one person who just changes his outfit, jumps mm -hmm. into the closet, puts on the, the mask of the Holy Spirit, and comes back out. Ta-da! And I'm not trying to be irreverent, but that's literally their own description, is that God basically changes his appearance and his role, but there's really only one of him. So it's a misunderstanding of the Trinity. Arianism, this is a huge one. And this is going to be an episode you don't want to miss, even if you say, ah, I can take and leave the other ones, because modalism would be like oneness Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. That's one of the big areas where that's practiced, but also some of the monotheistic religions. Arianism is about the deity of Jesus Christ. And this divided the church perhaps as long or longer than even the monothelitism, which came a little bit later. We're going to talk about that as well. But Arianism is the idea that Jesus was basically just a man. Mm -hmm. And there were multiple manifestations of this in the Gothic church, largely. I think Visigoths, Ostrogoths, people in, in uh, northern and southern Italy in the time. So we're going to talk about that. There's plenty of those. Think Jehovah's Witness, think mm -hmm. Mormonism, mm -hmm. think Baha'i faith. There's some of that in there as well. So these are all things that you're familiar with. Now, we're also going to be speaking about monophysitism, and this is the idea that there's only one nature in Christ. In other words, 
This would go against the doctrine of what we call the hypostatic union, that he is not 50% man and 50% God. He is 100% man, 100% God. And there's another one, Nestorianism, that thought it was sort of half and half. And so there's various doctrines that were condemned early on that had a wrong understanding of the union of God and man in the man, Christ Jesus. And this is one of those. Still taught today in the Ethiopian church. Mm-hmm. Pelagianism. Now, a lot of people, you've, you've probably heard the term semi-Pelagian or Pelagian. It's often brought up in Reformed debates and things that involve what we would call Augustinian perspectives on theology. It's a debate between Augustine and a guy named Pelagius early on in the church, and we're going to talk about that. And this one probably has as many or more tentacles than Arianism into doctrinal systems that you're much more familiar with than any of the other ones that we've mentioned. So you don't want to miss that episode either. Not that there's any that I want you to miss. Right. We want you to listen to them all. You're going to actually really get some interesting nuggets from history from Brian, and some interesting theological nuggets as well. And I think we're going to really enjoy this journey together. Yeah. And and when we talk about this first one, Gnosticism, um, and I'm going to give you some historical background and name drop some, some people you need to know. And then, of course, Luke will give you some of their major tenets. But let me just say that I recommend two books. Actually, I, I'll recommend three books. Two of them were my college seminary books. And one was just a more modern rendering. But in in seminary, I I read a book by Harold Brown called Heresies and Orthodoxy in the History of the Church. And he deals with these and gives the biblical balance that hopefully Luke and I are going to do. And then um, another book I had in seminary was J.N.D. Kelly, Early Christian Doctrine. And I'm actually going to quote from him in this episode. He was a Scottish historian and theologian. And then the modern take is one called Heresy, A History of Defending the Truth by Alistair McGrath. So if any of these topics we're discussing interest you and you want to know more about what was at hand and the outcome, I encourage any of those books that I just uh, referenced. But this first topic of Gnosticism, before you jump in, there's yes. just one other book that I wanted to mention. Oh, okay. Do it, please. And it's, it's called The Gospel According to Heretics. Mm. And it's by David Wilhite. It is absolutely fantastic and gathers as much as could probably be gathered without getting too crazy. In other words, it's accessible. You don't have to go read a book on the first six ecumenical councils. He talks about who these people were and what, to the best of our knowledge, we know. And it's written re- fairly recently. Another great book, and I love the recommendations you made there as well. Yeah, and let's just let's just point out that heresy, at its basic root um, etymology, just means wrong teaching or, exactly. or or teaching that's that's not fully correct or fully biblical. So, by no means are Luke and I advocating, you know, witch burning or you know, <laughs> sin sniffing and find the heretic and you know, and and do some damaging, say, terrible things. What we're trying to do is is point people in a correct, what we think, biblical interpretation of the text and of, you know, what we'd call orthodox or biblical Christian history. So heretic is really a stinging word today, but historically it just meant this guy is not teaching the full truth or there's something off in his teaching. Doesn't mean we're, we're not to love him. 
or position ourselves, admonish him, admonish yeah. him or, you know, but it, we're not saying go out and sniff and find, you know, modern day heretics. <laughs> this is not the Inquisition. In other Th- words. That's exactly <laughs> right. That I just wanted to say that at the offset too. But let's let's tackle our first one from the historical standpoint. And before we do, I know Luke's going to get into some more of the deeper belief system of Gnosticism. But let me just say Gnosticism was one of the first heresies or false teachings that the early church had to deal with. How do we know that? Well, even though Paul and others didn't use the word Gnosticism or Gnostic, we get from their writings that they were clearly talking about this collection of people who had what became known as Gnostic thought. And Gnosticism just is a Greek word meaning having knowledge. So before we get into the history of what Gnosticism is, Luke, you always give us these five tidbits, these five points. So let's let's turn it over to you and you give us those little points. So the first point is, believe it or not, Gnosticism is older than Christianity far older. That might be surprising. Gnosticism has at its root the claim of secret knowledge. That's the word gnosis is where you get the word Gnostic. Number three, Gnosticism sought, or I should say Gnostics particularly sought to corrupt Christianity by taking people outside the narrative of scripture. This was the method. Number four, major player, and I think Brian's going to talk about this person in particular in the second century was Valentinus. And there's several other people that go along with them. I'm going to leave that to Brian, but I'm going to be focusing on them later on as well. So I wanted to bring that now. We still have some of his writings and I have a copy of this in my hands right now from the Nag Hammadi library. And you're going to get to hear an excerpt of this, of what this fella has had attributed to him. They think that the attribution stands very strongly So we're going to talk about one of his writings. Number five, Gnosticism is directly connected to apocryphal writings. The Apocrypha is not just the collection of documents that you find necessarily in the Catholic Bible. It's much larger than that. But the idea of apocryphal is secret writings, hidden. It comes from a couple of different words, both Latin and Greek. One means to obscure, one means to be hidden, and other variations of that. And so these writings were clearly derivative of a secret knowledge and Much of what you'll read in things like the Nag Hammadi Library are written by authors who had that specific intention. This is secret knowledge I've gotten from some mystical source, perhaps attributed to God, but not the God that we might be thinking of. And here it is for $59.95. And so those are my five as we jump into this. And Brian, I can't wait to hear what you've got for us. Yeah, great. Great, uh, great little segue and introduction. So my turn, of course, is to to talk about the history of it. But before I do, let me just define what Gnosticism is just by its Greek word. It just means having knowledge. Let me say also, secondly, that Gnosticism is not a religion. A lot of people go, well, they were the Gnostic religion. Really, what it was is it was a collection of religious ideas promoted by religious teachers that were promoted and taught within early Jewish and Christian sects, but as you pointed out, have their basis, their root, far before Christianity. And so the Gnostic texts didn't represent what you and I would know as like a a scriptural text. They were by a variety of teachers who were teaching their own thing, if you will. They were kind of setting up their own schools, and they had their own ideas 
but they had certain things in common through all of this. So it was like the Cambridge version of spirituality. That, right? that, 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 that's exactly right. And generally, um, and you're going to point out some of these, Luke, generally, Gnostic cosmology and all its various schools and various teachers presented a dualistic understanding of life, that there was a supreme God. In some cases, that was Jesus represented that. And then there was a lesser God, and they usually pointed out to the lesser God of the Old Testament and so on and so forth. And they thought the material world was flawed, therefore evil, and only the spiritual world had its roots. So I say that, and I know you're going to unpack that, because Gnostic thought, as you pointed out, predates Christianity in that it really is a hybrid, a curated spirituality that includes Neoplatonic thought. We don't have time to unpack what all of that is, but it's it was a new understanding of the philosopher Plato. We'll just leave it at that. It had elements of Neoplatonic thought. It had elements of Zoroastrianism which was a, a Persian religion, a dualistic Persian religion. And then it had curated segments of the Judeo-Christian worldview. So what they did is they took all of these kind of religious spiritual systems, mixed them up into <laughs> a, a mix or a bag, and came out with this, this new spiritual worldview, cosmology. It's kind of like what New Age does you know, it's the new age right. religion does today. You know, they, oh, I'll take a little bit of that. I'll take a little bit of this. I'll take a little Buddhism. I'll take a little Christianity. I like that about Jesus. And I'm just going to mix it all up and give it a spiritual angle. And so th they, they valued mystical or esoteric insight. The origins of all of this, though we know it has connections to Neoplatonic thought, has connections to Zoroastrianism, it has elements of Christianity and Judaism mixed in, we don't really know where it originated. We just know that it did. In order to understand Gnostic thought, we really have to look at the teachers, the prominent teachers. And there were many. And we don't have time to go into all the various Gnostic teachers. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to hit upon some of the major players, if you will, in Gnostic thought. And again, reminding our listening audience that they always didn't agree on the same right. things. Each of these teachers kind of had their own little angles, their own little insights, their own secret spiritual knowledge. They were one-upping one another at different times. So within the Christian world, as it pertains to the church, we definitely know a Gnostic type of group was around during the time of Paul and the early apostles. Why? Because they referenced, again, not Gnosticism, but they referenced characteristics of Gnostic thought. The question is, who were they addressing? The answer is, we really, really don't know. We don't know if there was one person or one school they were, they were attacking. We just know that they were in disagreement with this mixed philosophical spiritual thought that was being promoted during their time. Some, and again, there's not a lot of historical evidence to back this up, but some scholars think that possibly Simon Magnus, the sorcerer discussed in Acts 8, may have been the guy who really brought it to the church. Justin Martyr, one of an early Christian theologian and apologist, and Irenaeus, another Christian apologist and historian, talks about Simon Magnus, and they reference 
in some of their writings that Simon, after the episode in Acts 8, had moved to Rome, shacked up with a lady by the name of Helen, and they kind of started to promote and advocate for this new Gnostic understanding, this new spiritual knowledge understanding of Christianity. Whether or not that's who Paul and others were referring to, and you know, in the case of Paul, Colossians, there's definite right. writing in, of Paul in Colossians against individuals who had this, these Gnostic tendencies. Whether Simon Magnus was the person, we don't know. But what we do know is that there was a early church, first century, early first century individual or school of thought that was upsetting the writers of the New Testament. Luckily for us, we do know who the main players were for the second and third schools. And again, these are based upon teachers. The The one that is largely known and very important, other than Valentinius, who you mentioned, is a fellow by the name of Marcion of Sinope. Marcion of Sinope, born roughly, we think around 80, 85 A.D., died roughly 160 A.D. Interestingly enough, Marcion was within the Christian church at the time. He was an accepted Christian. History shows he was a huge admirer of the Apostle Paul. He very much liked Apostle Paul and Paul's writings. But somewhere along the line, Marcion gets in touch with, or maybe he already was uh, familiar with Gnostic teachings, and he begins this dualistic understanding of the Christian faith. He started to teach that Jesus was distinct from God of the Old Testament. On that note, I was when I was doing some research on this, Brian, it said that Marcion was very likely directly associated with Valentinus and Basilidas while they were all in Rome generally at the same time. So yeah. it's almost impossible that they were not familiar with one another. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, I think your point stands very strongly. Yeah, and the the um the connections between those three who you just mentioned are very close and clear. And if there was, you know, a trinity of Gnostic thought in the <laughs> right. early church, they the, you you mentioned those three. But why Marcion is important, particularly for Orthodox Christianity or biblical Christianity, is he started to compile the letters of Paul. He was the first, if you will, to create a compiled canon of scripture. The problem with his is it was edited. (laughs) He took out parts he didn't like. He, you know, brought in other things he he did like. And because he wasn't fond of Judaism, he would, you know, extract all Jewish references. And and so really what happened is is he had a false understanding or a heretical understanding of the Bible and the Christian faith. And so what happened is he was opposed by the early Christian leaders, such as uh, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, others. And by 144 AD, he was excommunicated for his wrong teachings. He was asked to leave saying, hey, Marcin, you can't be teaching that. That's not what the apostles taught. That's not what you know the early Christians taught. You're bringing in all this 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 weird Gnostic thought. And I have to say one thing, because we mentioned it at the beginning. This was also associated with money. When he came to Rome, he made a contribution, which was an insane amount of money. Mm-hmm. Or when he was made to leave, they gave it back to him. Right. Yeah. They didn't want the money. And I thought, boy, couldn't the church benefit from that kind of attitude these yeah, days? Yeah, sure. Un- unquestionably. So, so we have what some scholars think, uh, Simon... Magnus, kind of the archetype of this, 
the sorcerer. Then you have Marcion of Sinope. And then, as you pointed out, closely related and associated with Marcion is Valentinus. We think Valentinus roughly was a little younger than Marcion, probably born circa 95 to 100 AD. And like Marcion, was in those Christian circles. As a matter of fact, Valentinus was even considered for a pastorate. He right. he was he was like people were watching him and going, "Boy, this guy's smart. He's godly, and we're we're gonna we're gonna make him a pastor." But then he started on this <laughs> Gnostic influenced teaching. The church took notice and said, "Hey, this is not biblical, you know, teaching in line with the apostles." So we're going to ask you not to do that. He huffs and puffs, and he, in 140 AD, opens up his own school. So Marcion and Valentinus, around the same time, that 140 to 144 era, were both called out on the carpet by the early church saying, guys, you're bringing in false doctrine. You can't do that. And each of them, in their own way, started their own schools, because that's kind of what you did. you the early right. philosophers. Well, you don't like what I'm saying. I'm going to open up my own school and, and get my own students and so on and so forth. As you're going to point out, Valentinius's writings went far. I mean, he was very influential. They spread throughout Rome, uh, Italy. They spread throughout North Africa. And his writings are still with us today. And like Marcion and Simon before them, the early Christians denounced his writings. Tertullian specifically denounced Valentinus. And if I can say one more thing, just to keep tying this back in to what we've covered before, it's always been through the writings of these folks who believed false doctrine that so many were taken in. Remember the rest of the cult examinations that Mm -hmm. we've done. This is what set them apart. It's just one person. But if you remember, I think it was Charles Russell. He had more in print than all the pastors and priests in North America combined. Yeah. By the end of the 19th century. And this guy, same way, very prolific. He circulates this false doctor and people just eat it up. And how is that? That's so much like today, Luke. They use media. A lot lot of the the cults and, you know, what we call heretical thought today, they use social media, YouTube, any means possible to get their message out. And that's why we need to be equipped. We need to be biblicists where we're weighing all this information that's being thrown at us on a, on a day-to-day basis. So we have Simon, we have Marcin, we have Valentinus, and then Balsides, who, who you, you brought up. And he really represents what we'd call the Alexandrian school of thought. We don't know exactly when he was born. We think he was, you know, his most active sometime around 150 to 175 AD. And he is known, working with Valentinus and others, what many people believe to be some of the purveyors, those who proclamated what were later known as the Nag Hammadi Library. And you'll be talking about that. And the Nag Hammadi Library was, was written in Greek and in Coptic. So there was a strong Egyptian flavor to this, um, this Coptic um, expression of these, these Gnostics. And some of the books that were came out of this Alexandrian um, school, uh, Gospel of Thomas, the Apocrypha of James, the Prayer of Paul, and so many others. And you have the book in front of us right here, Luke. So these guys were not only writing, but they were collecting these, probably later on, kept 
by monks, either Gnostic monks or even Orthodox monks in a library and then later put in the ground for safekeeping. Why, we don't know, but they were discovered in 1945, the Nag Hammadi Library. So let me keep going because I could be on this all day. <laughs> Another school a little bit later was the Sethian school. Mm. The Sethians claimed they their heritage went back to the son of Seth, you <sighs> know, and like many others, Irenaeus opposed them. They, they had early links to Jewish mysticism, um, which were called the Barbalites at the time. Then you have the Elkhazastes. They were founded by a guy by the name of Elkhazi. And again, he was a popular teacher. He was opposed by Hippolytus of Rome and Eusebius. Then you have the Manichaeism school. They were dualistic cosmology founded by a guy by the name of Mani, who was circa 215, 274. He was a fellow of Iranian descent whose parents were of, of a Gnostic sect. And then finally, and I'll leave it at this, is the Mandaeism school. And they claim that they have links to John the Baptist and teachings to John the Baptist, and they were just promoting what John the Baptist taught and, and said. But unequivocally, all these groups that I just mentioned, from Simon the Sorcerer to Marcin to Valentinius to the Sethian school, to Mani, all of these guys had their roots in ideas dipped in the fountain of what we would know Gnostic thought. And so I'll leave you with this and then we'll turn it over to you, Luke. How can we summarize all of these guys? Well, one of the books I told you about, J.N.D. Kelly, the Scottish historian theologian, he said he, he, he gave really four ways to summarize all of these different schools of thoughts. First, they were thoroughly dualistic, setting an infinite chasm between the spiritual world and the world of matter, which they regarded as evil. Hmm. Second, all these groups, when they tried to explain how the material order came into existence, they agreed in refusing to attribute its origins to the ultimate God, the God of what we would know the Bible. Third, the Gnostics all believe that there is a spiritual element in man, or at any rate, in the elite manhood, which is stranger in this world and which yearns to be freed from matter and to ascend to its true spiritual home. Mm -hmm. And fourth, all these Gnostics teachers had in common, they pictured a mediator or mediators descending down the successive aeons or heavens to help humanity achieve this. And so salvation, redemption, wasn't bought and brought by Christ. It was the descent or ascent of knowledge that we get about this divine spiritual reality. And so in a way, it has Buddhist overtones as well. Eastern right. Buddhist, like a nirvana of, of I'm, that's a brief history. I'm going to just leave it at there. Much more could be said about all these guys, but we don't have time. So Luke, let's turn it over to you. Brian, that was excellent. I don't, I don't know how you managed to get so much information in such a short period of time. I do not have the gift of that level of concision. So I appreciate the compactness and the precision with which you spoke. And just to, to give additional support to what Brian has stated, I do have the Nag Hammadi library here. For those of you not familiar, Nag Hammadi is a location. That's why it's called this. It was a location that was actually a graveyard or on the periphery of a graveyard 
at the site of an ancient monastic establishment in Egypt. And this was found in an urn by, I think it was three fellows that were digging and they uncovered the urn. Some people think it was buried there because of the the indictments of Athanasius, where he said, these books are going to be in the canon and none other. And if you have any of these other ones, you better get rid of them. And they think that this is why the Nag Hammadi mm -hmm. ended up in that location. But the only reason why it survived is because of the arid climate there. But just to give you some of the names that Brian has been talking about here, these people were absolutely influential in the Gnostic thought. In the Nag Hammadi library mm -hmm. was found an excerpt from Plato's Republic. Mm -hmm. There it is. And here's the paraphrase of Shim, the revelation of Peter, and here's the three steals of Seth. There's also multiple excerpts of discourses on Seth. So the Sethian school, the Platonic school, this was sort of like we were talking about the Cambridge version mm -hmm. of ancient spirituality where these teachers had their own little sect and they began to produce documents, all of which became a compendium of knowledge for later Gnostics. Because, you know, if one guy said, well, I've got it right, and then two other guys said, well, I've got it right. Well, if you're a Gnostic and you really buy into that, then you want to know all the secret knowledge, right? And that opens you up to all of this nonsense. And if you read some of these, even though they're fragmentary in many cases, the parts that are able to be read are almost incoherent in mm -hmm. many cases. It's just a lot of really strange stuff. And that's not just because things were lost in translation. It's because there was there was a problem with transmission. Right. It's just truly esoteric. It's, it's, it really it's just is. spiritual blabber almost in, in, in a sense. And as stated, I wanted to talk a little bit about Valentinus and some of his work, which we have as what's called the gospel of truth. Now, you mentioned this in the end of your history there, Brian, and it's one of the parts that I really wanted to start out with because there's there's a secular side to this in a philosophical sense, and we're going to talk about that briefly. And then there's also a spiritual side in which there are religious tenets. However, the danger of this is because they are dynamically similar. The philosophy itself is the means by which it permeates the church. So think of it like a flatbed semi, right? You can put almost anything on it. And if you justify it philosophically and people become familiar with the dynamic contour of this justification, then all it takes is the right sound, the right vocabulary, use a construct that's already familiar to people, and you shoehorn your specific little false teaching right in the door. And it's very important that we mention this because we're supposed to be vigilant as Christians. Again, we're not sin sniffers. We're not doing all this stuff. But the way that you think is often more important than what it is you're thinking. If you're thinking correctly, you're going to start understanding the Word of God the way that it ought to be understood, letting it speak for itself, and not superimposing things on top of it, and then living your life in such a manner that it's divorced from the things that you say that you believe. Because in practice, you're actually adhering to a different philosophy that may have originated from teachers that you respect or from cults that you may have originally been involved in. So when the scripture talks about being set free, it's talking about being set free in your mind and your spirit, your heart, so that you can perceive God for who he is and then follow him the way that he says. So as we come into this, the first thing I want to talk about is the the last portion of what you said, where you mentioned Zoroastrianism. There's actually uh, Zoroaster is one of the one of the included people in this library, but then you also mentioned Manny and Manichaeism. This has a really important 
connection. And if, if your eyes are glazing over, hear me out for another 30 seconds, okay? Manichaeism was a, a doctrine in which Augustine, or some say Augustine, was involved in for over seven years. I think mm -hmm. it was nine years. He was involved in this community as he was studying and trying to teach in Rome. When this was happening, he eventually converts to Christianity. You can read about that in his confessions. Mm -hmm. But it is uncertain as to whether or not he ever fully rid himself of some of the dualistic tendencies. And it comes through in his theological underpinnings. And we're going to talk about that later a little bit more when we talk about his debate with Pelagius. But listen to this understanding of Valentinus, and then we're going to talk about what it's dynamically similar to. So here's the connection again. Valentinus, dualism, Manichaeism, Augustine, the major theologian of the early Catholic Church. In an excerpt from what's called the Gospel of Truth, written by Valentinus or attributed to Valentinus, he says this, those whose names he, speaking of the Father, as he calls him, those whose names he knew at the beginning were called at the end, as it is with every person who has knowledge. Such names the Father has uttered. One whose name has not been spoken is ignorant, for how could a person hear if that person's name had not been pronounced? Whoever remains ignorant until the end is a creature of forgetfulness and will perish with it. Otherwise, why do these wretches have no name? Why no voice? So whoever has knowledge is from above. If called, that person hears, replies, turns to the one who is calling, and goes up to him. He knows how he is called. Hmm. The, that person has knowledge and does the will of him who called. That person wishes to please him, finds rest, and has the appropriate name. Those who have knowledge in this way know where they come from and where they are going. They know as one who, having become intoxicated, has turned from his drunkenness and having come to his senses, has gotten control of himself. That understanding of basically the selection of God the Father of particular persons to both hear and understand him seems to be very prevalent in the Zwinglian et al. Augustinian view of predestination. Now, Augustine did not come down on that as hard as Zwingli did. Zwingli took what Augustine taught, extrapolated from that, and began the doctrine of what we would call double predestination. But it has its roots in this dualism where there's this select group of people that God calls who are then able to respond because he has known their names. And then there are the group that are not known, that perish in ignorance. And if you read, for instance, the Westminster Confession in section three, article three, it says very clearly that this is something that from the beginning of time, God has predestined certain people to be saved and certain people to be damned, and that number is unchangeable. Yet the Bible says very clearly there's no respect of persons with God. So the idea of unconditional election to any particular office of any kind is not something we would support as a biblical doctrine, yet it seems to potentially go all the way back to this writing. Because if I stuck a different word in there instead of the word knowledge, that dynamic construct, remember I talked about the flatbed truck? Mm -hmm. This idea that you can shoehorn something in on a construct with which people are familiar seems to come from a Gnostic writer. And it could be even older than him. We don't know. But these types of things that we are so familiar with can come through very old ideas, none of which are particularly biblical. And yes, the Bible does teach predestination, but it is not taught in the manner that is often countenanced when we deal with the higher ends of Reformed theology. That being said, 
that's just one of the things that we're looking at as a connection. The, the first thing I want to start out with here is the philosophical side. We've already started looking at that. But in its essence, the modern philosophical reincarnation of Gnosticism is effectively postmodernism, mm -hmm. where you've heard people say, well, that's my truth, right? Well, that doesn't mean that they're claiming that that truth is from God, but what they're talking about is a singular personal experience that you have no right to disagree with. And it's ultimately a disagreement that there is an absolute truth. So philosophically, the grandchild of Gnosticism is this idea of personal knowledge that trumps any empiricist examination of the facts or any biblical authority to try to disagree with the portent of that mm -hmm. individual's experience. And this is the means by which these original Gnostic teachers were able to force these things into the church as saying, well, this is what I have. This is my truth. And they are trying to emulate biblical prophecy, yet without any of the trappings, like Paul would said, having a form of God in us, but denying the power thereof. Hmm. So when we have this, we have this general attitude, my truth or my knowledge, and the idea that this is not something that anyone else can have. Mm-hmm. Then they seek to share it. This was addressed in an indirect kind of way in a book called Fault Lines, written by Vadi Bachman. And while we don't support everything that Vadi believes, this was a very insightful statement. He's speaking about racial disparities, as he calls it. And he says there's much to be said for a form of racial Gnosticism. And he says where a, a group of individuals, regardless of what their ethnic heritage is— can tell other people that they have no right to speak to social issues in which this ethnic community is involved, particularly because they do not share that person's ethnicity. And he said, this is nonsense. And he's speaking as a man of African descent himself, mm -hmm. criticizing this construct that has been allowed to pervade much of what we would call liberation theology, dominionism. There are many types of groups that come through this and they use biblical passages in order to justify a racial construct that is based on racial Gnosticism. He speaks out about this very strongly in the book, but that's just a single issue. The problem's far greater than that. There are many movements outside the church, for instance, uh, that involve the LGBTQ plus community. And this is where the affirmation ideologies come from, mm -hmm. where you're not supposed to newthetically counsel me and create cognitive dissonance, because then that just conjures up more specters of fear and distrust and otherness, you're supposed to affirm me in what I'm doing. And here, mm -hmm. how about even though you're the counselor, you sit down and you let me tell you about my experience so that you can learn how to love me, so that you can learn how to be me. And there's much of this, and it happens in many sectors. I know those are two hot button issues. I'm not just trying to die on those hills, but I'm saying that these are two prominent examples where this happens. And unfortunately, the church is getting off mission listening to these philosophical constructs that are based on people having an, a silo of knowledge that somehow or another the Bible just is not adequate to address mm. and must be addressed through a socialized secular construct in the same way that these early Gnostics came to the church promising a specific form of knowledge whereby these people could be set free from their inhibitions mm -hmm. that were taught to them either historically, culturally, whatever— Listen to me, and I'll teach you the way to ascend. Listen to my knowledge. It's the same promise, and it does the same thing. It takes you away from the biblical narrative. So you either believe God or and that he gave us the Bible. It says he's given us all things necessary for life and godliness. 
Now, that doesn't mean, and I'm not implying that we shouldn't have conversations with people whereby we learn things. But what it does mean is that needs to happen in a biblical framework that does not detract from the authority of the biblical narrative whereby we are called to faith mm-hmm. and practice. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let me, th- those are two tremendous modern applications, uh, Luke. I mean, obviously, relativism, postmodern ideology, and then, of course, a lot of the agendas that sprout from that. Let me toss out one yeah. that hits a little closer to home and may be uncomfortable for many of our evangelicals, which you and I are, are part of that evangelical right. camp. And that is Gnosticism is alive and well, unknowingly, in a lot of evangelical groups. And what I mean by that is this drastic separation between the spiritual world and mm-hmm. the physical world. And the Bible clearly puts the two together. God made the metaphysical world, the spiritual world, and he made the physical world. They're two sides to the same coin. They're not to be separated. You can't, you can't, you know, creationism is echoing the grandeur of God. But many in the evangelical world like to separate the two. So we hear things like that. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn in the end. Mm-hmm. Or or the only thing that really matters is the spiritual life. It does, you know, w- 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 you know, taking care of your body, taking care mm-hmm. of the environment, all those things don't matter because really what matters is is the spiritual life. That is gnosticism creeping in the church. Why? Absolutely. Because because God didn't create us just spiritual beings. That's the angelic world. He created both the spiritual world and the physical world. And to say that the physical doesn't mean anything is unbiblical. Why? Because when Christ comes down during the millennial kingdom, he reigns the physical world for a thousand years. Then he throws Satan and the demons into the pit. They're gone forever and recreates a physical world. Right. So physicality means something. It is it is an expression of God's creative being. Remember, in the beginning, God created, created bara he, is the Hebrew word. And then later on, and he saw that it was good. So this creation, this beauty, this being, this physicality that he put into existence, he saw as good. And I have to say this, it brought me back to a podcast where we talked about how do we know that God is good, which we did before. Yes. And you speak about this, but I loved what you said there and it stuck with me because I'd never really thought about it like this, even though we completely agree dynamically on this. When you're seeing a tree, you're seeing God's thoughts. And it is. God was the artist here. All the things that we find to be inspired. And this is how we talked about objective beauty in that it is perfection that comes from God and is displayed on a visible spectrum that we're able to enjoy. That's exactly right. So, So to the Gnostic idea to say that the physical world is evil is an affront to he, God, who made the physical world, whose thoughts and ideas and plan of action was to bring these in. And again, it's not that the physical's going away. That's that's the weird thing in the evangelical church. <laughs> well, yep, it's all going to burn. It's all it's all the only thing that really matters is the spiritual. No, it's not. Because we come back as risen physical beings. We may have super, you know, human uh, beyond human, beyond physicality properties because if we look at Christ as our example, 
There, there seems to be that. But this dualistic nature found in many evangelical circles mm. that only the spiritual matters, brother. It doesn't matter, you know, about any of that physical stuff. It's only just the spiritual. That is Gnosticism light. And that is not the biblical notion because God created and saw it was good. Jesus comes, establishes the thousand-year reign, the millennial reign, and then reconstitutes, recreates everything in a physical sense. It's it's a perfect point there, Brian, because there would be no redemption right. if, it, if there weren't for that. And that's even what Paul says, that's not creation itself grown within itself to wit for the redemption. And then he says, we ourselves grown within ourselves to what? For the redemption of our body. Yeah. And so it's clearly it, it, a physiological. Exactly. You can't separate the two. And Gnosticism wanted to separate the two. And and what's interesting, and we don't have time, Luke, is always our greatest enemy, is we find this dualistic nature, not only in sermons given, not only in how we think, but in the songs we sing. Again, I'm not going to poke at different <laughs> songs here, but you look at some of these these songs we're singing, we're going, boy, that's that's just that's almost Gnostic light there. And so this idea of like, oh, it's just all gonna burn. It doesn't matter. That mindset is is a Gnostic influenced mindset yeah. because the physical world does matter because God is the author of it. And it is our stewardship, it's just exactly as our body. That's why right. it says don't defile or corrupt the temple. Don't defile or corrupt. And if you remember, audience, I know, Brian, you know, where it talks about one of the reasons why God is going to judge those at the end is, is those who destroy the earth. Yes, right. And it's not just talking about the population. I'm not going environmentally activist here. I'm talking about a proper stewardship. And classically, Christians have always supported an appropriate stewardship, a balanced stewardship yeah. of the earthly goods that have been given Unquestionably, to us. Unquestionably. The Didache, one of the earliest handbooks for Christian living beyond the Bible, it was almost considered to be part of that. He makes that one of the criteria, that Christians should be caretakers, stewards of what God has given, because early Christianity clearly understood the biblical teaching of Genesis 1.1. God gave this as a gift. Yes. I want to care for this. I, I want I want to be a good steward of what God has given us. And they saw as a, an example of false teachers, those who want to abuse and take advantage and, and destroy the earth. So it's interesting, the early Christians, and the Didache is a great example of that, were very clear in keeping that physical, metaphysical yeah. in, in balance. It, it it wasn't that, oh, the, the physical was bad and, and the spiritual was good. It's they're both gifts from God and we're to care and tend for both of them. But in modern evangelical circles, Luke, you and I could spend hours just right. picking apart how this Gnostic world has infiltrated the church in the evangelical church. Exactly right. And you know it still has a draw, Brian, because it seems like it's a very simplistic solution. Right. And we found it when we looked at Christian science, where she talked about just pretending. That's right. Basically, that the physical world was just a construct of your mind. That's, That's exactly totally right. Gnostic. Gnostic. The Gnostics believed, if they did believe in Jesus, that he was a phantom. Mm -hmm. And that turned into a whole other subset of doctrines. Right. And then Scientology. 
It's all about the Thetan. It's about becoming that spiritual being that you always ever were to the destruction of your current body when, you know, Xanu or whoever returns. The Baha'i faith, same thing. They don't believe in a physical resurrection of Christ. They believe in a spiritual resurrection Liberal of Christ. Christianity, the yeah, same thing. Liberal absolutely. Christianity, you don't have to believe in a physical. It's a spiritual resurrection. How much more dualistic can you get than that? Exactly. The eternal struggle between dark and light, exactly. yin and yang, all that stuff. And so Gnostic, and that was just a great list right there, by the way, Luke. But Gnosticism has infiltrated lots of camps. And we, as Biblical Christians always need to be on guard against that split. Gnostics wanted to split the spiritual from the physical. They were never meant to be split. They were to be kept in concert with one another. Absolutely. And and the question remains is if we do not properly reconcile all of our stewardships, how are we supposed to grow and develop as responsible spiritual beings under the tutelage of Christ. Christ had a body, did he not? That doesn't right. mean that we, we make our bodies gods. And it says that spiritual, you know, some people use that verse, that's physical exercise profiteth but a little. It just means for a little time. You have to yeah. keep doing it. It's not talking about you should just let yourself go, you know, in the name of God. And then, no, there's a stewardship that's implied there without being out of balance. And, and one of the things that, you know, we mentioned, at least I mentioned during my little quick historical overview, you know, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus Tertullian, and, and some of these Christians who were opposing Gnostic thought because they clearly understood the ramifications of what Gnostics were teaching. If Jesus didn't physically rise from mm. the dead and he was just a walking phantom or a spirit being, that has huge theological implications. Right. And and the same is true for us today. You know, if it's just about the spiritual world and not the physical world, that too has huge ramifications. And so we can't separate what God and the Bible clearly keeps intact as two sides to the same coin. Couldn't agree more, Brian. I, I love that call out. And as you said, that does hit close to home, but that's exactly why we're doing this, because we want to challenge the thinking that's leading people into in, improper constructs of what we would call anthropology. And here's, here's I'm just going to say this because we got to wrap up, unfortunately. But anytime someone is wrong in their theology, they're almost inevitably wrong in their anthropology, mm -hmm. because it's like there is a net zero there where you can't take away from one without adding to the other or vice versa. And so if that's imbalanced, then your doctrine of man is wrong. Your doctrine of God is wrong. Your doctrine of sin is wrong. If that's wrong, your doctrine of Christ is wrong. Your I mean, it just yeah. dominoes into all these things, the huge implications you were talking about. And I think before we close up, we, we, we just have to point to who is the model that we should be looking for. And of course, we say Jesus Christ, 100% God, metaphysical, and he was 100% human. He was the God man. And Jesus came physically the first time, though, though God humbled himself and came in the form of a human. And he will come physically again during his second coming. He will reign physically for a thousand years. And then he will physically recreate the new heavens and earth. Absolutely. And so the physicality of Genesis 1-1, of God putting things in order, doesn't cease. It doesn't just turn to spirit. The physicality is still prominent and a very important narrative that the Gnostics tried to split, and we cannot let that split. I completely agree. And I mean, this is why we don't accept the ascetic path 
This is why the Bible doesn't say pretend like the inner you doesn't exist. It says you're to give you to God. That's right. And so just just to try to wrap up here, I know we've covered a lot of ground, and we definitely appreciate your patience as you've listened and hope that this will make it into your toolbox. But remember this. Anytime someone comes to you with a promise of secret knowledge or a promise of siloed knowledge where no one else can have it, you can't possess it, you can't speak to it, your, your flags ought to go up, your ears right. ought to perk up and say, well, what's this really about? How does this take me away from the biblical narrative? Because some of them, as we've spoken about, We'll use biblical jargon to attempt to draw you in. You know, another example is the generation gap, where we believe that only certain people. So it prevents all of these things stymie your ability to communicate the truth of the Word of God to particular groups because you believe that they are somehow an exception to the doctrine and the knowledge that God has provided in Scripture. But if God doesn't respect any person, in other words, he doesn't favorite anybody, then that means his truth is for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that if we are witnesses, there is no one to whom we should not be witnesses of his truth. And that that's primary, not the social issues that sometimes drive these conversations and these groupings that happen. The Bible, on the other hand, is for everyone. It states that people aren't supposed to add to its words. That means men should not be speaking as if their words were on the same level of Scripture. If they're speaking Scripture, then let God be true. Let every man be a liar. So as we've looked at this, I want to end with an illustration before we close up. There was a story. I don't know if it was Aesop's fable or not, but this is very similar. This struck me as as Gnosticism, where they come in, they bring this familiar construct. And this story is called Stone Soup. And the story says, there's a fellow that shows up outside the village. And he says, you know what, folks? I can make the best soup that you've ever eaten, and I can do it with just some stones. And so he sets up this big cauldron, and he starts putting big stones in the bottom of the cauldron, builds a fire, heats it up, and all of a sudden villagers start coming out. And they're like, oh, what is this? I got to have it. He goes, you know what? This soup's going to be delicious, but it would probably be a little bit better with some carrots. Uh, and so somebody goes to their house and grabs carrots and goes to bring it up. Keeps stirring. The aroma starts coming up. He says, you know, this is really going to be amazing by itself, but it would be better if I had some potatoes. And so largely through his claims of being able to make this special stew, he convinces all of these people to give of their own resources to make this mix that inevitably appeals to them, but leaves him as the one to whom all of the, the wonder of the soup is attributed. And so stone soup is really what everyone else contributed. And mm -hmm. he contributed nothing and took advantage of everyone. And Gnosticism, in my opinion, is this construct and Gnostic constructs like this that have pervaded the church that we've spoken about are inevitably an amalgamation of what is appealing to the people who wish, for some reason, to believe the claims of somebody who has no substantiation mm -hmm. for what they're saying. And how different are Christians to be in our exercise of vigilance to make sure that what people are saying is not just an empty claim, but are to be Berean and are to investigate, according to Scripture, the veracity of those claims. And if it fails, not again— going out and creating an inquisition, but being willing to say, hey, listen, brother or sister, if you be in Christ, this is what Scripture says. This is our rule of faith and practice. Mm. So good. So good. Luke, I am so excited about this um, next little series, uh, as you said, the 2.0 version of, <laughs> of the cults, um, looking at this because it's challenging to us. And, and with each of these, hopefully it refines our thought process, our understanding of the Bible, our understanding of the historical teachings on some of these very, very important um, doctrines. So 
Thank you for the time. Looking forward to next week. Absolutely. And again, listeners, if you have any additional questions, don't fail to contact us at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. This has been Squawk, and once again, thank you for listening.